Hello and welcome to We've Got Worm, the podcast series where each week we expertly dissect the hit web serial Worm arc by arc. I'm your host and self-proclaimed Worm expert, Matt Freeman, and as always, I'm joined by Scott Daly, whose only previous experience with Worm was knowing that they die when they're out in the sun too long. Scott, uh, which arc are we discussing today? Hey, Matt, we are discussing uh, arc four, titled Shell. And and you know what, Matt? Uh, this is a one shell of a good time. It's a, that's, that's a that's pun good. from Ninja Turtles. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. I'm a child in a man's body. I mean, I think all of our listeners, we can assume, are Ninja Turtle fans. So, I mean, they should be. Yeah. I, I mean, jo- all jokes aside, um, I, I, I think it's worth it now to comment on these arc titles and how they always mean at least one thing on a metaphorical level and sometimes two things on a metaphorical level, like this one. At first, I was like, okay, well, she's kind of coming out of her shell, but also it's about a villain who shoots bombs, also known as shells. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of a stretch. I don't know. I mean, no, I, I, I noticed, think that's right. I, I noticed this a lot with Wildo's names that he very frequently, um, the name has like a, at least a double meaning in terms of um, implication. So. Maybe I'll try to point those out better as I as we go forward. But there's I, I see it a lot in Twig, which is not what we're talking about today. We're talking about <laughs> Arc Four. So, um, yeah, let's the first. Uh, you know, as as usual, we've got some really great feedback on on last week's podcast uh, from in, in on Reddit, Scott. People are really enjoying discussing your predictions. They're enjoying them very much indeed. Well, that's, that's that's good. Uh, you know, it was really hard for me. I never looked in the Reddit thread, um, but I definitely was like being that guy that monitors like how many comments there are and uh, and how many upvotes it has. <laughs> I was I was still doing those things, but I I managed to never click on it because I didn't want to spoil myself. So well, that's a good choice. <laughs> but I'm going to summarize the important things that were not spoilers at this point in time. Well, good. So uh, user Frescopino points out how many bits of foreshadowing that they missed on their read-through that they're noticing through our discussions. And I have to admit that the same is true for me as well. And it makes me regret blazing through Worm as quickly as I did the first time. Um, really enjoying kind of being able to, to go through it slowly now. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I think that this is like, I think it's just because we're doing this with the intent of having to talk about it for two hours <laughs> that we're noticing all these things because I read it twice. Right. So I read it the yeah. first time and it's just a strict read through. I usually do it Wednesday. Like it's literally the second I'm allowed <laughs> to start reading the next arc. <laughs> I start reading the next arc. Um, and I read through it once. I don't take any notes. I just read it to enjoy it. And then I go back again throughout the remaining days of the week and I'm jotting down notes and everything like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, that's the advantage of doing it like this. And I hope that we're, we're pointing out stuff to people that they might not have noticed before. Yeah. Yeah. And if the cliffhanger structure were working on you, you know, normally, then you probably would just be plowing through it and, and, and missing things. But yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. All right. User Gutzon uh, likes the pace at which we've been moving through the action scenes. As long as we continue to highlight the cool moments in those action scenes, we had a lot of feedback that basically said, "Yeah, we're going through it at a pretty good pace, and we should kind of stick to that." Uh, King Bob Twelve adds that it would be great if we could focus more on the prominent background characters, for example, like Regent and the Wards, 
And um, this is definitely something I can do, especially because I know which characters are going to matter and which aren't. Yeah, and I think this is apt for this week too, right? Because I think we're going to be paying more attention to Regent this week than we have in the past, just because he's a little more prominent this week. He's got a little more characterization and more to do. Yeah, yeah, he's he's he is fairly prominent this week. You're right. Wolf Tamer Nine suggests another theme for us to consider would would be trauma. And I think this is a perfect time to bring this up, actually, because uh, this is the week where we introduce the concept of trigger events in more detail. Um, we'll, we'll get to that, obviously. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really good comment. That's a really good point. Um, <laughs> there is absolutely a whole lot of trauma in this episode. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and how people are shaped by trauma, obviously, yeah, is, yeah. is part and parcel. Fallen Pairs would like to see more explicit comparison to other works of fiction. Um, this is something that I definitely did in my old review of Worm, uh, but it's something we can signpost as we move along. You know, Matt, I, I read that review that you did um, back when you first submitted it because I edited it for you. Um, and of course, at the time, I had never read this book and didn't know anything it was about. And I've thought about going back and reading the review, but I'm like a little cautious about it now because I don't now that I understand more of the world, I hope I'm worried it might lead me to understand things too much. Um, but I really want to, I really want to go back and read that review of yours. You know, I, I wrote it to be non-spoiler-ish. Okay. So I think you would be fine. Um, yeah, I, I did, I did sort of mention like my, my thoughts are always like, I love, I love how the powers are done in this so much better than they're done in, for example, DC and Marvel. And then I think I, I'm not the first person to draw kind of a rough comparison to uh, Watchmen, even though there's. Really, like the only thing it really has going similar to Watchmen is that it's going is that Worm is going for like a realism angle, but it's very different interpretation of a realism angle from the way <laughs> Watchmen does it. So. Yeah, I'm actually reading that like uh, for the first time right now uh, oh. because I don't have enough Worm to read each week. I'm also reading a bunch of other things. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I'd seen the movie, you know, which is not very good. Um, and, uh, and I, but I never like fully just sat down and read the entire comic. So I'm finally doing that and I'm definitely going to be, you know, doing it with worm in mind and paying attention to moments that echo or, uh, reinterpret some of the same material. So I think that I'll try to bring some of that to the podcast. I don't think I have any of it today cause I'm still in the very early pages of that, but I'll try to try to bring that in when I can. Okay. That sounds good. Uh, on on that note, Third Floor Greg mentions some compelling similarities with uh, the Wheel of Time series, uh, which I feel stupid for not noticing, considering my internet handle is a blatant reference to the Wheel of Time series. It is. Um, I read those books. I remember that. Yeah, it's just 14-year-old hyper-nerd Matt making a fake word in the old tongue. Um, that's my that's my handle. Um, but I'm not going to go into what those similarities are because that probably would be a spoiler, actually. But anyways, uh, there's also a fun argument in the Reddit thread about whether or not Armsmaster was in the wrong uh, last week in his treatment of Taylor. And I think one of the great things about Worm is that there's, you know, is that these arguments can exist. There's no clear-cut right answer. Um, both people were kind of in the wrong. You know, you can make an argument that one of them was more in the wrong and it was more on them to make things work out. But clearly... There's enough shades of gray here that you can have a legitimate argument about this, and it doesn't 
uh, it's it's not just answered immediately, and and the the work certainly isn't telling you what the right answer is. Yeah, I mean, I think I I will definitely as much as I was you know team arms master in that argument um, uh, between the two of them in the last arc. Um, he's clearly not good at dealing with people, and he doesn't uh, approach situations in the best way. He was definitely escalating the problem. Um, I still think Taylor was. Um, being ridiculous and wrong, but uh, he could have handled it better as the yeah. adult in the situation. Right. You could say that he was fa- like factually correct, but but handled it so poorly that he that he lost a lot of right. points. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And finally, Predictablicious totally feels you, Scott, regarding your rant slash well-constructed thoughtful argument about the manufactured plot tension that you noticed last week. Um, so there's one person, there's one other person in, in the world who agrees with you on that. <laughs> just one? Just one? Yeah. I, so, okay, before we go on, um, <laughs> I, like I said, I didn't read the Reddit, so I don't know. If, I, I assume if people were, like, yelling at me, you would have told me that. So I'm assuming that didn't happen necessarily. But I just want to make sure, make sure it's clear that it's not that I don't like mystery. It's not like I, that I don't like not knowing things. Um, I'm fine with, with the withholding of the information like that, as long as it has a purpose within the narrative um, to do it that way. So I'm sure I'm sure there, there are going to be reveals later in this story that could have been revealed if people had just talked to each other. I'm sure that's true. But if it if the reveal works narratively, um, then I'm OK with it. Like, for example, we've been kind of foreshadowing Taylor's uh, the incident that happened in January for the past two arcs. In this arc, it's going to be revealed. I like that it happened now because it works within context of the whole narrative um, to this to be revealed now to these certain people in this certain setting. I liked that. So that's all I was saying. It just bothered me in this very specific case. And uh, and I'll be sure to point out more op- opportunities that that bothers me. All right. Well, we'll uh, <laughs> I'll look forward to that. <laughs> I say one bad thing, Matt, and you get yeah, all upset at me. I know. It's just, we're never going to end. All right. So let's move on into our, into our beat-by-beat commentary for this arc. So we start out this arc with Taylor going to school, trying to go to school again. And uh, she actually manages to stand up to Emma, who is trying to tell her off. And Taylor actually finds the courage to just laugh in her face and uh, basically things are going well for Taylor in her personal life. And so she feels confident even in the face of her tormentor. So how do you feel about, about this uh, little reversal here, Scott? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, as a human being, I'm happy for Taylor that she's feeling more confident and feels like she can uh, talk back and fight back against her oppressor. But um, very specifically in this section, the source of that confidence, the part that really makes her um, finally like, talk back and i think she just tells emma to fuck off or something is Mm -hmm. like the fact that she has twenty five thousand dollars that she stole from a bank sitting somewhere um so i mean like this this is it's manufactured confidence if you know what i'm saying like it's yeah she didn't start like liking herself more she didn't actually start believing in herself more it's just she has direct evidence it's like look I am superior to you in this one specific thing. And that's where my confidence comes from. And it's not, it's not, that's not real growth in her. That's just, you know, a short term hit. It's like, get, you're getting a high. 
Um, yeah. and, and so that's, that's what, what worries me about this whole uh, interaction. I'm, I'm happy she's doing it, but the source of it is concerning. Yeah. We're, she's going to, she's going to say later that the thing that super villain ing is doing for her, um, that's, that's causing her to feel this way. And, uh, and it's not necessarily a positive psychological dynamic. Um, yeah. And I also found it very interesting that, um, when Emma speaks to her at the very beginning of this chapter, um, she like goes down her deep detailed description of people. Um, and like that she said she does, but this is all describing like, um, physically all the things that Emma is the best at. Like she's, she, I think she like will never get a zit. Um, she can tie her hair in a knot that would look bad on everyone else, but looks good on her. Um, any style of clothes works, looks good on her. She can break any social code and walk away unscathed. And, and, Taylor says she hates her for that. And like, there's a lot of reasons to hate Emma <laughs> for, for Taylor, um, but that she specifically attacks her for the physical aspects of her um, was interesting to me. Yeah, right. I, I agree. Um, it's, I, 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 it goes hand in hand with that thing we were mentioning last week where, where Taylor almost kind of uses a person's appearance as a lens for judging them, even when it's not fair right exactly yeah yeah so um we get a little bit of of insight into taylor's mind as she's kind of thinking about the bank robbery and she tries and succeeds in not dwelling on the torment she caused the hostages she's just sort of has no trouble at all just blithely putting it out of her mind when it kind of bothers her last week and it really should bother her um she goes to meet brian and they go over the morning papers together to see how their robbery is being reported. And it turns out that it's being underemphasized in the media. The traffic blockage caused by their escape actually gets more news coverage than anything else. And this is something of a relief to Taylor because she was um, concerned, you know, about her identity being blown and 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 also didn't want to read like about horrible consequences. So really, it's it's almost like a best case scenario for her that that the, the robbery went so well that the bank is underemphasizing how much money was stolen and <laughs> hooray. Yeah. 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 So, so she, she's kind of getting off scot-free. Um, and, and she also gives herself a pat on the back for bothering to go to school. And she feels like she's broken the recent pattern of constantly playing hooky, which we had, we had pointed out last week, how, how it seemed like she was on a really bad trend of, of missing a lot of school. So, so today she actually went to school. So she's, she feels like things are on the up and up. Yeah. And, you know, we talked last week about how, you know, you specifically like drew a line in the sand kind of, and we're like, this is the point where she makes a decision. She does an action that really, um, cements like that she's going down a dangerous road. And we talked about how, um, if there's not kind of immediate like consequences or repercussion for that kind of stuff, it's only going to reinforce that behavior in her. And that's kind of exactly what we're seeing here. And that like, um, she doesn't feel the consequences of anything she did wrong. In fact, like exactly that, it seems like things are going up for her. Um, there's no negative. There's nothing negative to what has happened. Only positive. Um, so that's just kind of a reinforcement loop there. Yeah. I, I think I use the phrase breaking bad moment, which, <laughs> yeah. To, to, to speak of comparing this to other works, I mean, I, I think that's a, almost a paradoxical phrase because neither in Breaking Bad nor so far in this story has there been any moment where 
it was like, oh, that's the obvious moment where Walter White or, or Taylor crossed the line. Um, her putting a knife to somebody's throat was definitely like a big red flag. But it's like, well, she was already the kind of person who would do that, right? Like, and th that was always mm -hmm. the moral with Walter White. Right. He's like, well, Walter White, you just didn't realize it, but he was always the kind of person who could become what he becomes in that show. So um, it's an interesting, you know, we could call that another theme, the theme of, of slippery slopes and, and uh, letting things get way out of hand and not realizing it. Yeah, I will say, fortunately, I think the latter half of this arc is going to draw out some direct consequences to Taylor's actions. Um, mm -hmm. And so we're going to see some of that. And then, I mean, again, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I hope that we'll see her deal with that on an emotional level. Yeah, yeah, me too. So she ends up going to uh, the, the upscale market district with the undersiders, Sans Rachel, and uh, basically they just kind of hang out. Um, Scott, did you want to... Do you want to relate some uh, description fucking to us? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> once again, there's some description fucking here where um, Taylor describes Brian as looking sharp with his green sweater and faded jeans. And then she just offhandedly says how just physically describes Lisa's clothes and then describes Alec. But make sure to point out um, how lanky he looks in his clothes. So Brian looks sharp. Lisa is just wearing clothes. Uh, Alec Lanky. So, yeah. Once again, <laughs> she really wants to do this guy. Yeah, he's she's ranking ranking them basically. Yeah. Um, we we do we do kind of get to understand uh, Rachel, aka Hellhound, a bit more here. They're just they're. I'm going to read this quote. Um, Lisa Lisa added, "The big trigger for Rach is mistreatment of dogs. I think you could kick a toddler in the face and she wouldn't flinch, but if you kicked a dog in front of her, she'd probably kill you on the spot." And um, I think that's that, that's we'll actually see some uh, verification of that type of thinking later. But it's actually a, a, an interesting kind of backhanded way of making you feel a bit sympathetic for Rachel because it's like she's she is this violent, unpredictable person, but she really actually cares a lot about one thing, which is dogs, and that makes her a lot more relatable. Yeah, she has a code, right? She's not just violent for the sake of violence, like. Um, she has a thing that's important to her. Um, mm -hmm. and that's, yeah, that's, that's definitely human. And, and I like, you know, um, I'm not going to pat myself on the back too much cause I'm about to punch myself in the face, but, <laughs> um, you know, I'm, a, I'm making an assumption that her, uh, history with dogs is, um, something very personal to her. And there's a lot of, uh, familiars familiar trends with Rachel wanting to protect innocent things that do not deserve this kind of bad treatment, which sounds very familiar to how Taylor's being treated. And, uh, and, uh, my, my prediction that they're going to be friends. It's looking pretty good, Matt. Yeah. That, that, that one, that one's on the right track, but, uh, sadly, is, sadly. Just, uh yeah, <laughs> sadly, this is the time to mention that they basically immediately say, say right out that Rachel is a murderer and in fact call her a serial murderer. <laughs> I was so even, wrong. <laughs> I'm not even sure how to interpret serial murderer here because it's not like she stalks people as far as we know, but I mean, I guess she, she's killed more than one person. Yeah, I think I it just means we, many. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. so five paragraphs into the next arc after I made my uh -huh. prediction, I am proven wrong immediately. Um, and just for those of you at home, I I, I put a um, Excel document together again, and we'll put it in the show notes so you can click on it and and track them along with me. Um, but 
damn, Matt, Matt, I'm, I'm over one, Matt. That's okay. It's okay, Scott. It's all, it's all good. You can, you, you can pull ahead. You know, you just got to make more predictions. <laughs> um, that's that's the trick. Just make so many predictions. I mean, that's how pundits do it. Isn't it's, that how gamblers like, <laughs> like, get into debt? Yeah, but see, this is more like political punditry than gambling. So, because there's no consequences to being wrong. <laughs> I just say whatever. This is where if I was cruel hearted, I would say something that sounded ridiculous but was actually a huge spoiler, but I'm not going to do that. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um, the undersiders have some more banter. And then it, basically, we learn that the plan is to hand the money over to the boss, the mysterious boss, and then wait. And he'll get back to them with the promised extra money. Um, and justifying why they should hand over their money that they just stole. Brian basically says, well, he hasn't screwed us over yet, so we might as well trust him. And I guess that makes sense. Do you think that makes sense? I, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. I, this whole this whole arrangement is, doesn't make a lot of sense, so it makes as much sense as it can, given, yeah. <laughs> given the situation. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel. Like, if you're going to accept this deal, then whatever. Yeah, makes sense. So then... Uh, 4.2, next chapter, Tattletail invites Taylor to go off and shop with just the two girls together. And um, this is a very, like, it's it's fairly lengthy and, and detailed conversation. And I'm not going to obviously step through every every exchange, but it's, it's some really fantastic writing here. Um, there's an interesting kind of, we, we never, we, we haven't really got to see the, the two girls together one-on-one. And it, it, it's an interesting dynamic. It's like Tattletail is trying to take this big sisterly dynamic, but Taylor is sort of pushing back in certain ways where she, you know, she's trying to essentially set some boundaries. And I kind of like how Tattletail just backs off and doesn't try to push it. So it's you learn a lot about both of them actually in 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 terms of that they're both showing what they want of the other, and they're both showing their boundaries and um. And you, and you're learning, you're learning more about Tattletale certainly than you've than you've learned elsewhere. I think. Uh, did you did you have some feelings about this yeah. conversation? I mean, you're absolutely right. I loved all of this. It's great. Um, I, I pulled one particular moment out that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, Tattletale, Lisa describes um, Taylor as observant, detail oriented and, and focused more than any of the others. Um, you watch, you interpret, and then you act with this careful surgical precision. Um, so my feeling on this is it's, it's not like a hundred percent, not true, but I don't think it's a hundred percent true either. I mean, we've seen Taylor like think, observe, and act with precision before, but we've also seen her make like really quick, rash decisions based on emotion. Um, and and I don't I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, but it seems like you know based on what we know about Tattletale, Tattletale, she could be like intentionally obfuscating the truth here, like like reflecting at Taylor the person that she wants her to be, um, not necessarily the the person that she is. Um, and I just find that really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a possibility here that Tattletale maybe um sees something in her that she wants to bring out of Taylor. Like she she wants Taylor to be the best Taylor that she thinks she can be. Um 
Yeah, and it's like, and that goes into more of her power, right? Because we know that she has an, an ability to see in someone's superpower uh, a portion of the superpower that they haven't uh, realized yet. Like she does it specifically with Gru, where she says, I think she says his um, his smoke also like messes up radar and other uh, electronic sensory equipment, but um, but Brian didn't know that. So, but it almost seems like this power doesn't extend to just other people's superpowers. Like it's like she knows things about their personalities that they might not even realize themselves. Um, and so it is really possible that in this moment, like Lisa knows and understands Taylor more than she does herself. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's like a, a motivational trick, you know, in real life without even any superpowers involved to like, if you want someone to behave like more, uh, you know, conscientiously or whatever you just compliment them on being conscientious and then they're like oh yes you're right i am very conscientious and then like internally reinforce that behavior in themselves even though you actually didn't think they were conscientious and that's why you were saying in the first place so it's like a judo thing i don't know if that's what tattletale is doing here but it is an interesting thing to think about like what is her motivation for saying these things to taylor yeah and it's like the more i read of her like the the less I trust everything that she's saying. Like it just, it just always feels like with a few exceptions that she always has some sort of underlying ulterior motive to everything she's saying. Um, and I, I don't know if that's true or not. That's just a feeling I get. And I don't even know if that's like a feeling that I'm intentionally supposed to get um, by the writing or not. I think it seems like we are. Um, but it just like every time, every time I see her talk or see her do something like I'm paying extra attention to it. Cause like, it's like I'm having to interpret it at face level and then at a second level. Yeah, I mean, Taylor's definitely very freaked out about her because on the one hand, Taylor likes her, wants her to be her friend and kind of wants her to be a big sister almost. On the other hand, she's the biggest vulnerability Taylor has because she has this power that could expose her. So, um, so you, you and because we're seeing this through Taylor's eyes, we're aware of the fact that there's um, there's risk involved and, and there could be, you know, the smallest action on Tattletail's part, on Tattletail's part, you're like, oh, is that, is that smirk an indication that she knows something or is she just smirking because she smirks all the time? Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and actually people with Tattletail's class of power are kind of notoriously difficult to trust or take at face value. Um, where I think we'll, I think we're, we'll mention that again at a later point in this discussion, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell, during this conversation, Telltale lets on that the undersiders have discussed Taylor amongst themselves and they've actually already guessed that she has problems at school. Um, and Tattle, and Taylor kind of pushes back saying, don't inter, don't, don't intervene with my school problems. If you intervene with my school problems, I'm gone. I need to keep the two major parts of my life separate. Um, that's kind of a, like, that's her major line in the sand. Yeah. It and is. I think that's like the theme of <laughs> this arc maybe is like, she mentions it again and again. And then we see by the end of it where that goes. Um, this is, <laughs> this is really interesting, Taylor. Yeah. Um, we, we also see that Tattletail either didn't know about her mom or claims that, she didn't know about about Taylor's mom dying. Um, and I always wonder stuff like this where where Tattletail could have plausibly figured it out with her power. Does she not know it because she didn't think to ask her power about it? Or did she just not want to pry? 
or is she lying or what exactly? I mean, it's like you mentioned, it's always, you know, like every statement she says, you have to kind of consider very carefully. What do you think? Yeah. So, and, and again, I don't have a full grasp of the power, but like she's mentioned before that she's gotten tired after using it a lot. So it seems like something that has to be actively switched on and is not uh, a, an always on type of thing. But then there are other times where it seems like it's an always on type of thing. I think the the conversation between uh, Brian and Taylor lady later in the arc, when they're talking about uh, building the suits is that in particular where she points out that having this power around people is frustrating. Um, so I don't, I can't tell. Right. And that's, mm-hmm. a, that's the thing with her is like, we don't know when she's bullshitting or when she's being sincere and like, and she uses that, like, like she, even, even this conversation where like, um, like where they're like, we knew something was wrong with you. We thought it was your dad beating you at first. Um, but then we figured out it had to have been something at school and the way she's phrasing it as if like we, the group, made these deductions together and, and found out this stuff together based on evidence. But it's like, we know that's her power. (laughs) She gets one piece of information and then she can find out more about it with her power. So like, like she, again, it's double speak. Like she's intentionally making it seem like this wasn't using her superpower to deduce this stuff. But I mean, it just feels like it probably is like, cause the, the, the most important thing here is, if these people are going to bring this random person they just met into their group to become part of them and share money and secrets and secret identities with, of course she's going to use her power on her, right? Like, of course she's going to try to find out as much as she can about this person because like they're placing a lot of trust in her. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I mean, I think from it, from a, from a narrative point of view, we don't know what, Lisa's limitations are at this point right and and we may find them out later and then certain things may make more sense but on the other hand we we may never know says the guy who's read the story how much of this <laughs> she's she's making up and, and how much of it she got from her power because I think that she does actually lean on the fact that the people she's talking to can never know if she's certain of something because she she magically deduced it or if she's just bluffing and causing them to let on more information which they could which she can then use to get even more information with her power Um, yeah because i think bluffing is definitely something that that we know she does at this point and you know uh, i like this a lot um and i don't need the story to like go back and explain every moment to me when taylor was being or when lisa was being completely honest and when she was bullshitting her and when she was bluffing like i don't need that like of course there's going to be moments and there's going to be reveals when we learn more about her and more about what she actually knows but i like that this is shrouded in mystery and we don't need it solved for every single conversation they have like this conversation in particular it might not never be shown in detail like which parts she knew herself and which she didn't and i like it it's cool it's it's well done and it makes the conversations more interesting because it yeah. puts you it puts you in Taylor's mindset when you're trying to read into everything she says. Yeah, exactly. That's that's pretty much exactly what I was going to say. It's you're in her head. So you should be in the state of uncertainty. Yeah. So the, the, the girls go and meet the boys at Fugly Bob's hamburger joint. I want to start a chain called Fugly Bob's. Anybody want to <laughs> go into business with me? Sure, that's, it would do so well. Yeah, it's that's the best name ever. Um, and 
Taylor wants to talk about their next crime, uh, which is which yeah. is kind of humorous. So what was what was your take on that? Because like, I guess you can rationalize it as um, like she's just trying to push her mission forward. But like, the sooner we get to the next crime, the sooner I discover who the boss is. Um, but it did it did just feel weird that the only person at the table who even brought up what the next crime would be is the one that's actually a superhero pretending to be a bad guy. Yeah, right. I mean, it, she 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 even knows on some level that she got a huge kick out of the bank robbery thing. So you can't help but think that there's uh, an ulterior motive in that she's really just wants to go on another crime spree. Yeah. Um, and because uh, that was that was really fun, actually, for her. And then Taylor asks them about their superhero, supervillain origin stories, which immediately kills the banter. And then we segue into 4.3. I should mention one of those things that I, that I just love is there's just the constant background banter and beautiful characterization of these four characters as they're talking. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't really summarize, but I'll just point out that like I just kind of am constantly grinning whenever the four of them are hanging out together and just giving each other a hard time and, and so forth. I, I totally agree. I love their conversation and the thing that sucks about the format that we're doing the show in is that like it's tough to draw attention to that because you're right sometimes it is just banter like it's nothing that's key to the plot um it's it's minute characterization that would be really boring to sit down and focus on so i think we we need to remember um like you just did when it happens to at least say this is cool this is well done because it's not going to come up in our normal deep dive conversations yeah yeah so at this point um we are told kind of the dynamics of of what a trigger event is and how a person gets their powers uh, I, I think it's i think it's lisa who explains this at the or, may, or maybe it's taylor's internal narrative i don't remember exactly but scientists in in this world think that there are um five people cap- capable of manifesting powers for each person with powers so basically a person capable of manifesting powers has to have something really bad happen to them uh, and experience some really intense stress to actually manifest powers. And uh, this further explains why villains outnumber heroes two to one, because people who are living sort of dangerous, violent lives in the first place are more likely to find themselves in a tense situation that would cause them to trigger. And my favorite, one of my favorite quotes of the series is, is Alec uh, responding to her question with, so you basically asked us to share the details of the worst moments of our lives, Alec said before taking another bite of his burger. <laughs> um, and um, so I thought that was a, that was a okay way of, of giving us this information. And it was, it was kind of funny too. What yeah, do you think? I, I like it a lot. I do. I, I think it's a very clever way to, you know, introduce the concept to us as readers. Um, but, but, um, oh, no. <laughs> I just, I don't, I don't buy that Taylor would not already know about this. Um, because like, she's been established as a character that like has been obsessed with, uh, capes long before she actually got her powers um she spends all this time on the internet researching them um and she's never heard of a triggering event um like i guess there's an argument that people um normally wouldn't share the worst moment in their lives on the internet but i just think the general concept of that's how powers are triggered um would would just be something she would know and you know again i think it works narratively um it's really good 
to um to explain the thing to us as the reader because sometimes the best way to explain something to the readers is have to have a character that doesn't understand it so the characters can explain it to them um i like that aspect of it i just think it comes at the expense of some of the character work it's funny you should say that uh because wildbo has gone on record admitting that this part will probably be changed in rewrites because taylor really should probably know what a trigger event is at this point um on the other hand the region quote is the best um, <laughs> but, but you know, um, I think the scene can be saved fairly easily. All, all you do is you you have it so that Taylor knows what a trigger event is, but doesn't quite think through the implications of that fact. You know, she, she just because you know rationally that a trigger event means that you must have had some kind of traumatic event doesn't mean that you make that connection when you're when you're talking to some superheroes. I, I don't know. Yeah, and I think it almost works better too because. Like then, like her making the assumption that it was only her event that was terrible is very in line with Taylor, being very in line with this type of person who feels like she's totally alone and no one else has ever experienced anything like she has before. Um, So I think that fits better. So I I think you're absolutely right that it can be easily changed and would still work and achieve everything the scene needs to achieve um, without Mm. without damaging some of that character work. Mm hmm. Um, before we go into the story, Matt, I just want to say how much I like Alec right now. <laughs> like the quote you just gave, like earlier in the scene, he put on a kid win t-shirt, which was <laughs> just, just amazing. I loved that moment. Um, and he's got this, you were talking about the banter and he's got this like one-off commentary as we go through everything, as we go through Taylor's story. Um, that's just like, it, it, it really serves to explain him as a character and it just, it's, it's fun. I just like him. I like him. I, I don't think he's the best person, but I like him as a character. Yeah, he's very well fleshed out for being kind of relatively backgroundish. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point, even though so so really, you know, you could actually make the argument that Taylor only brought up the question of asking them about their origin stories because she wanted to tell her origin story because she's actually ready to do that because she's never really yeah. opened up to anyone about the mysterious big bullying incident in January and here she does it. And she, she, she wants these people to know, which is probably the biggest indication yet that she wants these people to like her and, and she cares about them. And she tells them that the bullies filled her locker with rancid used tampons, which then like stayed over the entire winter break and became rotten. And then when Taylor opens it, she like vomits immediately and then probably Sophia shoves her into the locker and locks it. And I I think that is it clear that like no one even comes to help her and like she just stays in there for a really long time. Yeah. As she's as she's like covered in vomit and rotten tampons and and she triggers and then when they get her out of the locker, she's just sort of having she's sort of unhinged and, and violent. Um she doesn't even know what the what's happened like she just fears these feels these weird alien sensations which turn out to be the bugs but it takes her a long time to really figure that out so what do you think about this revelation so matt this part is so well written like this whole scene like how it plays out the detail that's put into it like the detail about um that one of the girls like temporarily became her friend like just like that like turns the knife a little bit more Mm -hmm. um that like she was at a high point kind of um and then this happened 
um, like I felt like I felt like I was in that locker with her. Like I kind of gagged uncontrollably just imagining that experience. Like, like when I read it first and again, as you (laughs) just read it back, um, that's how impactful it was. Um, and, and the thing I love, and I think we're going to see this later too, is that, you know, how these triggerings tie with the powers that you get, it seems like, because, um, you know, Alec described it as the worst moment in your life, but it was also Taylor's lowest point. It was when she felt the most worthless, the most disgusting. She was alone in the dark. And then that's when the things that are low, disgusting, considered worthless and live in the dark came to her and, and she became aware of. And I really, I really like that touch. It's very clever. It's very well done. Um, and it, it makes sense. So I really like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. That's, um, that's one thing to definitely point out is that the the powers do seem to be related to the um to what triggered them essentially almost an answer to what triggered them yeah and like again you know we've been talking over and over again about taylor's seeming complete disrespect for any sort of authority figure and like now it makes sense because like nobody was there for her nobody got punished because of this incident. Um, all the legal channels failed her. The school failed her. Her father even kind of failed her. Um, like, like nothing happened. Like she, the most is they got her medical bills paid for by the school. Um, but that's all that happened out of this. Mm -hmm. Um, and then she just had to go right back to school after she got out of the hospital and that's it. And it's like, you know, it made me think of other, you know, superhero origin story type stuff, because a lot of times like superheroes get their powers, but that's not like the defining moment of the person. Um, like Spider-Man, like gets his powers from the spider bite, but he becomes Spider-Man, um, when uncle Ben dies. But like here, it seems like Taylor, like became this person we've seen of her at this moment. So this Mm -hmm. is the origin for not only her powers, but the origin for, um, kind of everything that we've seen so far, because this is why she is the way she is. And, and the fact that it was so well done is so important because like almost everything hinges on this. It's so important. And like, he knocked it out of the park. It's so great. Yeah. Yeah. It, it works on a lot of levels. It's, it's, it's uh superbly well done. I agree. Um, and, and then we, we get the answer to kind of the, the question we were talking about earlier, where, Regent asks, "Why are you a supervillain if, um, if you if you don't want to use your powers against the bullies?" Because they're talking about what happened, and 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 he and his his first response is like, "Well, obviously you should screw with them." In fact, it was really funny because what he what he suggests is like you could easily just mess with them with your power. You don't have to <laughs> you don't have to to kill them. You just just harass them in a way where it can never be traced back to you. I mean, certainly you're you're gonna do this, right? which is funny because that's something you suggested. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and he's like, then why are you, then why are you a supervillain if you're not going to do that? And her answer is escape, which is, she's sort of blurts out without even thinking about it. Um, while Lisa looks on a small smile on her face, her chin resting on her palm. Um, Oh, Taylor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, and I love, I love the, I love the prose here. Like the word left my mouth almost immediately before I'd had the chance to even think about what it meant. And that's, yeah. that's so perfect. It's perfect <laughs> because like it, you would think 
that her natural reaction, her non-thinking reaction would be, I'm not like, right. Like if, if you truly aren't that person, like your uh, subconscious immediate reaction to that would be to deny it. Um, And we could have seen like her, her say something to the effect of, I almost spurted out. I'm not, but I caught myself and then did this, this and this, but no, um, immediately at the drop of a hat escape. And And we know, yeah. And she realizes it too. And that's, that's, that's like almost the most important thing too, is that like, she's having these mini moments of realization and she realizes what that means as she says it. Um, and it's like, it's shocking for her and she almost doesn't want to address it. Right. Because (laughs) she can't deal with that right now, but she knows what, what, what she said meant. Yeah. And and we know it's true because what we were talking about earlier, her reaction to Emma earlier was from this place of, it wasn't like, Oh, I, I have settled my problem with you, Emma. It was, I have mentally escaped from this situation. I am not even here anymore. I am, I am someone who robs banks now. I am, you know, so she, she's not, she's not dealing with her problems at school and with the woolies. She's escaping from them. And that's, and and that's just, she's just expressing that right here. And, and she's exactly right. And uh, yet again, it's a case where I think she briefly glimpses self-awareness, but then, kind of covers it up again because she's like, well, no, I'm really a superhero. You know, she, she, she's really, um, she's really clinging to this narrative of being an undercover superhero, even when her own subconscious puts words in her mouth. She's in too deep, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. So having discussed this beginning of chapter 4.4, uh, Brian, they begin walking back to their, their lair and Brian relates his trigger event. So Brian lived with his dad and his sister lived with their mom. Um, and Brian's dad was kind of a hard guy, but seems to have made him kind of a, a bit emotionally distant, but, but pretty tough guy. So pros and cons, I guess. And one day his sister sent him a text test text message asking for help. And when Brian arrived, at her house, it was clear that the mom's boyfriend had done something terrible, although we never know exactly what. So Brian beats the hell out of him and somehow triggers during this without really noticing because he, he just notices the darkness appearing as he's, as he's washing his hands later. Um, so, you know, we saw a, a bit of uh, Rachel's motivation. Her, her noble thing to protect is dogs. And now we see Brian makes a bit more sense now because his noble something to protect is his sister Aisha. Um, so he's allegedly doing supervillain work to make enough money to adopt her and get her out of the bad situation she's in. So what do you think about Brian's origin story, Scott? Yeah, so I wanted to use this as kind of a, a jumping off point to talk about something that um, I've been thinking of these past few weeks and I haven't just, you know, found a place for it. Um, you know, worm is not the most original story in the world. Um, and, and I don't, I don't mean that it's like completely derivative of other works and, and boring and completely unoriginal, but I think it's specifically taking, you know, stories like this and character beats that have been seen in fiction for a while. Um, you know, Brian's story is that lovable teenager who, you know, just wants to protect his sister and turns to the life of crime to be able to provide for her and her safety. And that's not an original story, right? That's been done again and again and again. 
but um, it works here um, because it's just a piece of the larger themes of this work, um, you know, that's examining what drives people to do bad things, what drives people to do good things, what makes someone make a moral choices. Um, when when you're presented with the power to affect real change, like literal superpowers in this, you know, how much of, of the path that you take is influenced by, um, you know, your strong desire to rectify your current situation, how little choice you actually have in that. Um, and, and I, I love that. I love it so much. Um, it, like, so if, if this Brian story was just like the main arc and conflict of the entire novel, I would have probably rolled my eyes at this thing and been like, oh, I've seen this a hundred times before, but you know, because it's just one small part of this larger theme examination, like it just works. It just works really, really well. Um, and I really appreciated that. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a backhand compliment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's realistic enough. Like another part of it uh, that I think we're going to bring up again, but the um, the fact that we've been with these characters for so long now, we've we've been with them for tens of thousands of of words of book at this point, um, and we are only now learning Brian's actual motivations and origins. It, you already like him and care about him. He's already kind of in your head, the way the way book characters get into our heads when we spend enough time with them. So um, I think that might be another reason why you actually care when you learn this information, instead of just being like, oh, it's a, it's a cliched setup of, uh, yep, 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 uh, good older brother superhero, plot line number 743, I got it. Um, it. It works here because it's an element of a character who's actually already very textured. Right. And, and we're, um, we're a hundred thousand words into a million and a half word book. So this, um, thing that we've seen over and over again, this standard, um, noble villain trope, um, is just the starting point of the character. So like, Mm -hmm. we don't even like, so we don't even know where he's going to go. This isn't, this isn't all of what Brian is. And I think that's another reason that it doesn't seem as derivative and it doesn't seem as, um, eye rolly to me. Um, Oh yes. That's, that's a fantastic point. And also, I guess we should point out that his, um, power is reflected in the fact that all he wants to do is keep his sister safe from harm, um, and, and hide her away where she can't experience all these terrible things. And then he gets like a super black cloud that hides everything inside of it. Yeah. So once again, totally, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so after, after they have this emotional revelation, um, they, they just chat some more. Brian offers to pay Taylor to make a costume for him out of spider silk, um, which she kind of hems and haws because it's actually really difficult to do. And then there's kind of an amusing and uh, amusing moment where she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess I can do it if we if we, you know, let the tens of thousands of black widows I'm going to need live in the basement of the uh, of the lair. And then Regent actually like has an actual emotional reaction to this for the first time in the story, because that's a terrifying thought. It really is, especially since when she leaves, she is not controlling them anymore. Right. And yeah, yeah. And she's like, oh, they're they're not, you know, they kind of stay in the same place when when they're not bothered. So it should be fine. Like, I just love how she's consistently not at all bothered by the bugs. Yeah. 
like yeah. to to a to a weird degree even. Um. So they get back to the lair, and Rachel isn't there. Um. And at first they don't make much of it, and Taylor sees that Brian has bought her a dragonfly preserves in amber as a welcome gift, and uh, has a pretty strong reaction to that. Matt, this is precious. It's like no one's <laughs> ever given her a present before in her life. Yeah. I feel yeah. I feel so bad for her. Um, yeah. Matt, she's she's in too deep. She's Remember, too Scott, deep. she's she's just spying on these people. Oh yeah, she's yeah, of, not, course, of course. She doesn't really have any feelings for them. Yeah, she runs and gives him the biggest hug ever, and yeah, yeah. Um, so eventually they realize that Rachel is out of pocket and they decide to go check on the money. Um, so chapter 4.5, they put on their costumes and head down to the dilapidated docks area, uh, to the storage lockers where the money was supposed to be dropped. Um, and Taylor kind of gives us some flavor about how the storage lockers were built during an economic high, but then became drug dens as the city had a recession. So we're getting some more flavor. What do you think about this? Yeah, I, I liked this a lot. Um, and I think I wanted to mention this last week, but we ran out of time. But, you know, we originally said I kind of called uh, this place, you know, every city USA. Um, and uh, I don't I don't really think that anymore. Um, I I think you said it was kind of more dystopian and I don't think it's like fully dystopian. Um but it's definitely like more on the Detroit end of the bad city spectrum. I mean, this yeah. isn't just any city like this. I mean, th this description, like I got a very clear image of what these all these storage lockers look like. And it's like, like it's it's not good. And and you're absolutely right that how bad the state of the city is, is like a very interesting commentary on the actual result of superpower people in the world. Right. Yeah, it's it's definitely a place that's that is it's it's good days are behind it and and it's got this domination by the by the um the supervillain gangs and and yes it has the superhero teams protecting it but they can only really do so much it's obvious at this point um so yeah it's i think like you're saying it's like it's a city you wouldn't want to live in but uh it's not a it's not a horrifying dystopia that you'd do anything to leave and then you also have to consider that it's not like Brockton Bay is the only city in the world that has super villains. So, right. Yeah. Um, I, kind of, I hope, yeah. I hope in the future we see, we get to see other cities and see what the rest of the world is like outside of just this city. Mm -hmm. um, I think it serves as a, like a good microcosm for the world at large, but I'm interested to see what the state of the entire world is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and before we go on, I wanted to point out something that I noticed in, right at this moment in the, the reading um, was that Wild Bo and therefore Taylor is is very deliberate with how they address characters. So if Brian is out of costume, he is called Brian, not just in in dialogue, which would make sense because um, they want to preserve secret identities. But even in the narration, if he's in costume, even in the narration, it's grew 100 percent of the time. Um, if it's, if he's out of costume, it's Brian. So I think that's a very, it's a, it's a good, um, in that it gets us into Taylor's mindset, how she's learning to separate these people's identities, separating the person, Brian from the villain grew, but it's also like really handy, um, for the readers as a shortcut. So you always know if I call someone grew, he's in costume and I know this for a fact. 
Yeah. So yeah, that makes very sense. good touch. You maybe could also perhaps consider it an instance of her like clear and precise thinking where she she delineates these things very very precisely and consistently and doesn't slip up. Um, it's the the precise thinking that Tattletail is accusing her of having that we don't necessarily believe, but but maybe maybe this could be viewed as support for that. Yeah, that's a good point. Absolutely, because she does. We have not seen her make a mistake with this since she was she learned what these people's real names were. So mm-hmm. yeah. So they make it to the storage locker and find that. The money isn't there, um, to which Regent immediately suggests that they kill uh, Rachel. And you can't actually tell if he's joking or exaggerating or dead serious. Um, uh, And then we realize that it wasn't Rachel because supervillains Uber and Leet, the video game themed heroes, are standing atop the storage locker. So the, the the undersiders and Uber and Leap begin engaging in humorous banter with the undersiders mocking their costume and their and their theme and their general crumminess and failures as villains. Um and the tone they're striking here is very teenagery and um almost light considering the 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 situation they're in where there's there's violence at stake, but they're they're not being too dire about it. The undersiders are less worried about losing to Uber and Leet than they are looking bad because Uber and Leet have this floating drone camera, which is filming and, and streaming their exploits. Um, so Taylor uses her bugs to vex the camera just because she wants to mess with them. Um, what do you think about these guys? Yeah, this this I mean, this next, I guess, chapter and a half is very weird (laughs) yeah i mean it it is it is a strikingly different tone from anything we've seen so far and from how the rest of the arc will unfold um i I did appreciate taylor's like self-awareness is so insane um when she's talking like she's thinking to herself about uber and leet and how um she's watched their live streams before but she couldn't watch it um sometimes because it felt like like they were the underdog, so you start rooting for them, and then they do something bad, so you start rooting for them to fail. And she says specifically, like, rooting for them to fail, looking down on them, made her feel like um, she was looking at them the same way Emma and her crew was looking at her. Um, and I'm just like, Taylor, <laughs> your self-awareness is so convenient in some places and so <laughs> non-existent in others. Um, but I, yeah. I, I really liked this. Um I'd like to say that I I knew they were wearing Bomberman costumes before they actually said it, <laughs> which I don't know if that is good or bad, but um, that image is just so hilarious to me. Uh, I I did not get that, so <laughs> that's uh that's great. I'm not too familiar with Bomberman, unfortunately. Um. So yeah, I, I think that's I think that's all very valid. Um. Yeah, her her self awareness pretty much turns off the moment she needs to do something to uh, further her own interests. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, so, and she kind of thinks to herself about how she knows about Uber and Lead from the media that they'll basically LARP certain games, like they'll play, they'll they'll pretend they're in Grand Theft Auto, driving around and beating up hookers. And uh, Uber's power is that he can become world-class talented at whatever he focuses on. So like he could just spend a day at the gym practicing martial arts and be like as good as a master. Um, 
So he's basically like a multiplicative factor on his learning skills. And Leet is a tinker who can build anything but only once. <laughs> I um, love I love that little detail, but only once. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, yeah. And the, the whole thing is pretty comedic. <laughs> and the closer he gets to making something that's close to something he's already made, the more likely it will explode. I love it. I love it. Yeah. These guys they haven't they haven't really told us much about how tinkers work, but I don't think it's saying too much to say they usually have a specialization where they can they can make one sort of type of thing that has a fairly logical description. So his is actually a fairly weird power that he can build anything, but only once. <laughs> so it's it's like a you know, it's a booby prize power sort of. Um so as as this chapter winds up, Taylor is excited about the prospect of doing some ultra violence on these guys. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, right? That they're objectively bad, so you can be super mean to them. Yeah. I also right. I, Yeah. I really appreciate that um through everything that happens for the rest of the the arc basically, Taylor's powers are are more or less useless cuz she didn't gather enough bugs before she got here. Um, mm-hmm. and so the, the, the final moment where she actually gets to fight bad guys and she, her power is kind of useless in the fight. I, I enjoyed that touch and I don't know if that's, that's deliberate or not. Um, but it, it was very interesting that finally you're like fighting bad guys like a good superhero would. Oh, nope. Sorry. <laughs> your powers yeah. are kind of useless here. Yeah. That, that is funny. I didn't notice that. Yeah. I wonder, um, yeah, I wonder if she's going to learn from this and, and, kind of ensure that she brings bugs with her wherever she goes going forward because well, I would hope so. It seems like if your power is bugs, you would it would be kind of a no brainer to have some bugs on hand. But also, she is new at this. Also this is kind of quibbling, but there wouldn't be bugs in an abandoned storage area. <laughs> like she mentions that um there's no food there for them so there'd be no bugs. It was like but bugs eat other bugs. I don't know. Like, yeah. I feel like there'd be a, a lot of bugs. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I guess um, maybe. I mean, she does find some, but they're like I they're guess like they're roaches just the useless moths. kinds of bugs. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. Because like, later she finds like a wasp nest, and it's and it's a big deal. But um, yeah. So next chapter starts, and Gru uses his darkness to avoid the oncoming Uber, and then to trip him up. Um, because Uber is dangerous at close quarters. He's the martial artist. And then Leet pulls out a bomb, which Regent immediately causes him to just drop, and it goes off, like, right at his feet. Um, and and the, the whole time, Regent and Tattletail are just delivering a constant stream of verbal beatdowns, which are just the best part of this chapter. And so overall, as we mentioned, Uber and Leet are pretty ridiculous, and this fight is pretty ridiculous. I imagine a goofy Seinfeld slap bass track, like backing the scene as the two villains keep making physically comedic errors. Um, it's, it's a very, it's a very unusual tone, especially given what we've seen so far in the story. Yeah, but it, I like it, right? Like it, it is very unusual and different, but I mean, these are like the annoying henchmen, you know, mm-hmm. that like always fail, but keep trying anyway, like the bebop and rock steady or yeah. whatever. Um, and it's like, it's almost refreshing after, like all the drama of last week that we're getting this kind of more silly fight. Um, because I, I was kind of like, 
there was that huge battle that took up half the arc last week, and I kind of expected this whole arc to be like, uh, like lowering action, and there wasn't going to be any like big action set pieces in this arc. Um, obviously that's totally wrong. Um, but I appreciated how it started here. It took a very different tone than the other battle did. Um, and I like this a lot. Yeah. Um, since this is a full reread for me, when I got to this chapter, I was like, what the hell is going on? I don't, I don't remember this <laughs> because it's so out of, um, I'm not saying I'm not like saying it as a criticism of like, man, he really messed up with this chapter. But like um, maybe because it was toward the beginning of the story, he was experimenting more with different tones. And because uh, this is such a silly chapter. And it, and it ends or I guess it sort of ends with uh, Taylor trying to fucking choke lead out with her combat baton, which manages to also be comedic because Brian casually points out that she's doing it wrong and gives her a tip to press on the carotid rather than the windpipe. And, and it's just like, that's, that beat is definitely played comedic as, as she's like choking a guy out and they're just casually chatting about how to do it correctly. Yeah. That's, that's kind of where this loses me though. <laughs> like that's almost a bridge too far where like, it's just comedic choking lessons in the middle of a fight. <laughs> like, like I appreciate the silliness of everything that has happened so far. I appreciate it that like, like he pulls out a, a Legend of Zelda sword and then immediately drops it and it disappears. Um, but this this just feels really weird. Um, it's just like everything about this part. Like even though like he, he says good girl to her after she does it right, like that all just felt really weird to me. Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't really seem like something Brian would say. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll just chalk this chapter up to um, I don't know what's going on here. Um, and then of course, this is where like the record scratch on that slap bass track would happen because now Bakuda shows up with a ton of foot soldiers and it turns out that, um, this is kind of a trap. So basically I'm not sure that the text accomplishes this, but if you're re if, if, if you know who Bakuda is going into this, then there should be a, a dramatic tonal shift away from comedy the moment she shows up and, um, especially when she mentions that it's a trap for the undersiders. So um, you could you could even argue that maybe the whole theory behind this chapter was we're going to lull the reader into this false sense of whimsy and then smack them down again when like a real a real bad guy shows up. Yeah, and I would say that's exactly what Wild Bo was going for, and I think he achieved it. Um, as much as I didn't like that last beat, in the comedy section, I not even not knowing who, who Bakuda is, um, this worked on me because there there was literally that oh shit moment <laughs> to myself when I realized what was happening because we we have learned a little bit of her backstory. Um, we know enough to know she's kind of crazy, and we know enough to know she deals with bombs. Um, and and then again, mm-hmm. like even even as just a perfect way to illustrate it, like. Um, one of the first things uh, Regent did was knock one of them uber elite. I don't remember which one off the roof. Um, and Bakuda just like easily deals with this. So it's like, that's it, perfect setting the tone of this is not going to be as easy. Yeah, totally. Yeah. She's, we're, we're seeing a higher class of villain here. Um, so, so in terms of the um, order of, of the writing, I think the next chapter is actually the, interlude from the character 
Caden, aka Purity. So I'm going to go ahead and, and go into this chapter because it actually gives us a bit of context, even though it does break the flow of, of our narration of the story a little bit. I think that's okay, though. Um, so we're, we're introduced to this new character through an interlude. Her name is Caden. We don't really know who she is at all at first, and we have very little context to go off. But basically, she's watching her daughter sleep and thinking about uh, Theo, who's in the next room, who is babysitting her daughter. And uh, it becomes clear that she had been married to Theo's father. So Theo, Theo is her former stepson, I guess. And Aster, the, the baby in the crib, is a child with the same man. Um, Caden then leaves Theo babysitting her daughter to go supervillaining. She jumps off the roof and uh, interestingly seems to require some kind of emotional push to actually activate her powers, which we haven't seen. I don't think we've seen anything similar to this before. And then she becomes suffused with light and flies off. So how do you feel about the whole intro for this character, Scott? Well, I didn't know she was a supervillain, um, obviously until the end of the, the mm-hmm. chapter. But at this point, I just kind of thought she was a vigilante hero. Um, I like the I, I do like the touch that she has to think her happy thought before she can fly. Um, I enjoy that. But um, I, I don't know, like this this whole interlude is is weird to me, and I, I understand it in in context, and I understand what he's trying to do, and we're introducing new characters and growing the world. Um, but I don't know really what to think of Caden yet fully. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's interesting because she's probably actually a pretty bad person, but obviously she doesn't see herself that way. Like, I think what you just said, like, from the tone, you would think that she's a vigilante hero, but from the latter part of the chapter's context, you learn that she's, like, the right-hand man of the head of the skinhead gang. Yeah, yeah. So... So she's probably patching over some personality flaws in her internal monologue. Um, and, I mean, she she has been doing some sort of positive things. She's been undertaking a private war with the ABB and essentially terrorizing the lower-level gang members and then intermittently going up against Lung or, or Oni Lee. Um, and she, ever since she learned that Lung was apprehended, she cleared her schedule and she's been going full bore to wipe out the ABB. And uh, if anything... What she's realized is that the ABB is actually stronger since she left, um, and she can't fathom why. So th- I think that's why it's appropriate to read this chapter here, because we're actually about to see that the ABB is weirdly stronger than we expected it mm-hmm. to be, having just lost Lung. Um, so she's frustrated, and she hems and haws, and eventually decides that she needs the resources of her old team and her old team leader, who happens to have been her husband. Uh even though she's very reluctant to become ensnared in his webs again. So she flies to an office building where he's working and he lets her in the window. And then they begin this aggressively civil conversation where every statement is loaded with implied threats and power positioning. I think it's really well written because it's just these very innocuous statements where just based on the small amount of context we've been given about these characters, we we get that these are not innocuous statements. These are, in fact, power plays, and and uh, she's probably not being paranoid. Yeah, yeah. So here's where we learn that her ex-husband, Max, is the leader of Empire 88, the white supremacist supervillain gang that we've been hearing mentioned, I think, ever since uh, the Glory Girl interlude, actually, maybe even before that, actually. I think it was offhandedly mentioned before that, but that's where we really learned what they mm-hmm. were. Yeah. 
So he says that he won't help her unless she rejoins the team and then offers her leadership of the team after one year's time if she isn't happy with how things are going. So from an outside perspective, like as the reader, I think um, it's kind of clear that he just seems to know the knob is to turn to manipulate her, even when her guard is up. But kind of in, in her own head, she's like, okay, he's he's serious this time. All right, I'll give him a chance. Right. And, and just kind of feel sorry for him. And on the surface, that seems like a pretty good deal. <laughs> it's like... After a year, you get to take over and do whatever you want. Yeah. But, I mean, I can imagine that being the kind of deal that someone offers and then eight months into it is just like, all right, I'm going to change the situation sufficiently yeah. that the deal I mean, doesn't really... I mean, he's yeah. the leader of a white supremacy group. Right. So, uh, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Right. Um, and then she, she accepts his deal and then turns back into her powered state of being radiant with light and then kaiser reveals his power when he basically just forms this metal suit of armor around his body and we see that his his power is metal creation and manipulation which i think is kind of cool because it's it reminds you of magneto but it's quite different from how magneto's power works with it, it actually has some benefits over magneto and then it has some drawbacks relative to magneto so i, I like this flavor of taking something which is actually kind of familiar, but but putting a neat twist on it. What yeah. do you think? Yeah, I agree. It's cool. Um, I like it a lot, and it is it is just original enough to be interesting. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm looking forward to seeing it in action. Yeah, because it could be really dangerous. Yeah. All right, so that wraps up this interlude. So we're going to move back into the uh, the Undersiders, Chapter Four Point Seven. Uh, under cover of Gru's darkness, the undersiders climb onto the roof of the storage locker and then down over the other side. At this point, they're just trying to escape because they've got Bakuda and a whole bunch of foot soldiers coming after them. And then they're discussing the fact that there seem to be far more ABB members than there should be, which is something we saw reference in the, in the interlude. And then they stumble upon a, a bomb booby trap, and Lisa immediately shoves Taylor to the ground before taking cover herself. The reason I highlight that is that We've been kind of mentioning over and over how suspicious Taylor and therefore we are of Lisa, but I thought it was noteworthy that when she perceives that there's a bomb about to go off, she doesn't just die for cover. She shoves Taylor to the ground and then takes cover, which really is, you you'd have to be pretty good at, uh, at acting and pretty committed to, uh, to fake that kind of uh, demonstration of, of actual devotion to someone. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really glad you pointed this out because I missed this um, until you pointed it out. And you're right; it is, it is one of those small character beats that shows something about a character that I can't trust at all. So it is yeah. nice. On some level, Lisa does absolutely care about Taylor and and actually does like Taylor, and you can see that in her actions. Yeah, I think in general the undersiders are working well as a team together. They're they're covering for each other. They're they're not. You know, they're they're not just leave, leaving any one person hanging out to dry. They're they're really um, they really actually work well as a team, as we'll see. Uh, and and as we see, Bakuda's tinker bombs are are serious. They're blowing apart buildings and they're injuring our characters. Uh, Bakuda finds them again and then uses a bomb that seems to generate like a small black hole effect that almost sucks them in, and they they kind of get injured trying to avoid that. And then almost immediately after that dies down, she hits them with another bomb that seems to slow down time toward the center of the blast. 
And because they can see everything ahead of them moving faster than normal, they realize that they're still inside the blast radius. So they make it out of that just barely. They're just kind of barely scraping by. Um, so we see Bakuda can make not just bombs, really, but more like tinker artifacts that create some kind of point source physics breaking effects of all kinds of different varieties. So what do you think about this power as it's being revealed to us? Yeah, so I got to stop underestimating powers um, <laughs> because like Wildbow has shown again and again that he's so creative with this stuff. He'll take something and he'll turn it in a direction where you didn't even see that coming. Like we knew that Bakuda was bombs, right? Like that yeah. was told to us. And right. so you think, you know, comic round thing with <laughs> from Bomberman that explodes um, or proximity mines or something like that is like the thing explodes. Not good. But yeah, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense for her to have this power to, to make bombs that do all these cool other things. And uh, it's it's really interesting and it's really clever. And I just like it. I like it a lot. Yeah. Yeah, like it's like basically she can she can do all kinds of all a wide variety of of technologies as long as it's a bomb in the end. Yeah, which I think is a really interesting twist. Um, so running away from this bombing spree, uh, the undersiders come face to face with some gang members, and Taylor notes that. The gang members are actually an assortment of like elderly and two young, terrified-looking Asians with a few hardened thugs mixed into to this group. Um, the undersiders are able to flee from them because the so-called gang members are more scared than loyal. Uh, and then they run right into a much larger group of ABB with even more guns. And that's how this chapter wraps up. Yeah. So I I don't I only want to briefly touch on this because I think we're going to cover it. Uh, in later chapters, but this is really the first moment where we've we and Taylor have seen a direct consequence to her actions. Um, the ABB is now recruiting anyone they can find, um, including innocent older people, innocent children, anyone they can. So, I mean, she set off a chain of reactions in taking out Lung that caused this power vacuum that has put good people in harm's way, um, and and she began that. So we're finally start kind of starting to see some level of consequence for her actions. And I think we'll yeah. see more of that as we go. Yeah. And, and that's exactly right. I don't know if she, if she perceives it that way, but um, she, she caused this, you're right. And it gets worse really. So it turns out yes. that Bakura likes monologuing, which is to say she likes power and showing dominance. Um, this is probably the, this is definitely the first instance of, of, monologuing for monologuing sake in this in this story but it's actually it actually works for me because bakura is this like narcissist like she's she's legitimately the kind of person who in real life if you gave her bomber powers she would totally monologue right um, yeah so in fact the only reason she hasn't killed the undersiders is that she needs to kill them in like a, such a dramatic way that it makes an effective terror statement to her gang and to the cape community so she she has one of her gang members take out a camera to like film what's happening and then tries to order one of the like innocent victim gang members to shoot one of the undersiders. And when that guy fails to do it, she promptly like just melts him. There's, and it becomes obvious that there's a bomb in his body. There was a bomb in his body somewhere that she detonated. So he just turned into goo. 
and everyone like the undersiders and all the gang members and pretty much everyone just freaks out pretty much the way you would if someone were just brutally murdered in front of you and Bakura just like laughs uproariously like this is the funniest thing ever um so how do you feel about the direction this is going at this point this i mean this is evil right i mean mm-hmm. this is this is the first time we've seen true evil in this story and it, it, you know one of the first things i thought about was the conversation that lisa and taylor had uh last week where they talked about you know there's this cops and robbers mentality um between the superheroes and the supervillains and everything is okay with their perpetual status quo as long as someone too crazy doesn't step in and bakuda is that person she's worse than anything we've seen so far and you know we've we've ragged on on taylor and lisa for the bad things they did last chapter we've ragged on glory girl and panacea for the bad things that they've done we even said that arms master is kind of a dick and he's not as squeaky clean as he comes off of but this this is evil this is violence this is death this is destruction just for the sake of it um and i think what's so good here is that the the story makes it very clear that 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 this is this is something on a whole new level the 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 description in the prose of um of bakuda's moment of laughing is like so powerful and impactful like you get that everyone gets it you get that like we've gone from the childish teenage fighting we've seen um in in their fighting with Leet and uber um even even in like even in the fighting last week um i mean they were they were fighting but no one was trying to kill each other right like this was just like like kind of like a saturday morning cartoon type of fighting um yeah. and we've moved we've moved to somewhere completely different now yeah and even though lung was planning to kill the undersiders we didn't see him just casually murder one of his underlings right like, right like lung lung is so far almost our like baseline of oh he's a really bad guy and even he actually seems to be a bit pragmatic whereas Bakura just seems completely unhinged and terrifying yeah i mean this is this is this is a change this is a change in what type of story we're in yeah yeah totally this is this is i think this is the culmination of of what we were talking about with the the atypical tone choices being made previously it's almost like wildo was pushing things in a in a more comic direction just so that the whiplash that hits you when this moment arrives is that much stronger yeah i absolutely agree and i think that's exactly what he was trying to do and i think it is really effective because in this moment too i was like this i'm reading a different story now this this has moved to something else yeah yeah so it's interesting uh at this point we get we we learn a lot about region right here actually because he's probably the only one present who just remains completely level-headed and doesn't really have an emotional reaction he actually starts getting into her head and acting like he appreciates what she did um and he is he's not just acting because he is in fact reacting very cold-bloodedly to what just happened but he's also playing into her headspace getting her to answer questions about how she did it what she's doing because the undersiders could use this information and she reveals that she put bombs in all of her gang members even the loyal ones um so what do you think about regent's play here 
Yeah, he's really complicated, and he's more complicated than we had seen up until this point. Like, he's always come off as the goofy one-liner, more childish one of the group. Um, But we see he's got some real darkness to him here. Um, You're you're absolutely right. This was kind of disturbing. Um, But... And, and like, on some level, he was trying to manipulate her and get into her head, so he's also smarter than we thought he was. But you're right, on some level, he he has a coldness to violence that even even uh, Rachel doesn't necessarily match. Um, yeah. now, now, she, I mean, she is very violent. She will do damage to people, but she has her code. Um, and he, so far, with this, doesn't seem like he has a line. Um, and yeah. that's that's very interesting. Yeah, like he he genuinely wasn't bothered by the murder he just witnessed. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I like this part of Bakuda's speech because it it makes sense, and it's also a quote, or it's it's something Lung told her, so it's telling us something about Lung also. And what she says before she starts kind of going crazy even more is, "True fear is a blend of certainty and the unpredictable." My people know that if they cross me, I only have to think about it to make the bombs in their heads go kablooey. Boom. They know that if I die, every single bomb I've made goes off. Not just the ones I jammed into their heads, every single fucking one. And I've made a lot. Um, I think this is, this is interesting because it's, a, it's a, it, it, indicating some understanding of psychology more than just like she's not just she is crazy and she is a psychopath and she's a narcissist but she's not just those things because there's a method to her madness like she she's Mm -hmm. she's acting she's being even more crazy than she needs to be as a method of controlling her her gang members i think that's that's nuanced like like i i love that that's in there just because if it wasn't in there if this if this explanation wasn't in there then she would seem a lot more one-dimensional and like oh she's just crazy she's crazy and makes bombs but this is actually like a uh, uh, terror tactic yeah yeah i, I agree uh, so yeah capes are terrifying and, uh, <laughs> yeah, really it's and, really true and then like you were saying like underestimating powers this is one of those moments where you're like wow like this is just one of obviously many that we're going to see and just having one person like this who has a screw loose can like make life hard for a whole city. So, um, yeah. And then of course, right after this monologue, Bakuda starts blowing up her underlings almost haphazardly just to demonstrate how committed she is to being crazy. As you do, you know? Yeah. Right. It's, uh, it's, I think I read about that in a management book. (laughs) So we move on to chapter 4.9. The undersiders slip away while she's doing this. Um, Regent's power is starting to short out because he had to use it a bunch of times in a row covering their escape. And what that basically means is he's like starting to get really bad cramps and can't really use his power effectively. Tattletail fills him in on what she's been able to puzzle out with her power. So first, Bakara isn't really the leader of the ABB, even though she claims to be. And she's not really controlling the bombs with her mind like she says she is. She's actually using a combination of a heat-sensing visor and toe rings. Um... And she also relates to them, Bakura's personality problems, that her trigger probably had something to do with being really smart her whole life and then failing at something. Uh, so this could be like her ego glass jaw. I like that expression. 
So Bucket is like in the in the back of the Jeep and somebody else is driving it and this Jeep is chasing them around and Gru makes a human-shaped figure out of darkness to distract the Jeep. And then when this doesn't really work or it works for a second, but it doesn't really let them get away, Regent overtaxes himself to move the, the Jeep driver's arm so that the Jeep crashes or swerves. And then Regent passes out, so he's out of commission. And then Bakura hits, hits them again, hits the undersiders again with another bomb. Um, so this is actually a very actionful chapter, but yeah. that's pretty much all that happens. Yeah, there's uh, there's not too much to talk about in this one. Yeah. Um, I mean, the action's good. I enjoy it. The thing that I just wanted to briefly mention was there's um, there's kind of some quick moments of character development here as everyone's scrambling and running around like Taylor, like sees Regent's arm lamp lay limp and make sure he's okay. Um, there's a moment where Gru gives tattletale shit for missing, uh, the fact that Bakudo was there, which we didn't talk about this, but when they were close shopping, she specifically asked not to tell the rest of the group about the fact that she missed that Panacea was at the bank. Um, mm-hmm. she asked her to specifically avoid that. So that, kind of shows that maybe the the group isn't as cohesive as we thought but then also um grew shields tattletale from a bomb uh taylor notices this grew notices taylor noticing this <laughs> and um immediately offers up an explanation and it's just this little fun character beat of these two people really like each other and then also Taylor uh, flips out when Gru looks as if he's going to quote unquote sacrifice himself when really he's just going to make a shadow uh, copy. Um, and, and, and it's almost as if like she genuinely cares about these people um, yeah. <laughs> in these yeah. moments. Um, no, that so, can't be true. Yeah. So these are like, it's really just these little moments mixed among the action beats that do character work for you. And I think it's really cool that that's done, that it's, we're not just reading action. We're learning about the characters as we're doing it. Yeah. And I, I will say that the first time I read it, I was in such a hurry to get the next thing that I missed a lot of these types of thing. Um, and that's that's a shame. Like I, I, I this project that we're doing right now is making me want to be a lot more disciplined in in slowing down when I read things. Um, it's really hard to have a hard time with. Yeah, <laughs> it's really hard because I don't do it either. Um, like I said, the first time I read this. I I plow through it. I'm done with it. I will be done with Arc Five by like noon tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Like so, um, but yeah, it is hard. It is hard to do. Um, yeah, but. I just I just know when uh, when and if Winds of Winter ever comes out, I'm I'm gonna try not to just read it in a twelve hour binge. But man, that's we'll never. It's, you're not gonna have to worry about it because it's never coming out. Good point. All right. So next chapter, uh, Taylor, uh, 4.10, Taylor sort of wakes up. She's extremely out of sorts. Her mind and body aren't working at all. Uh, I actually really like how this is written to kind of convey how completely out of it she is. She doesn't really understand where she is or what's going on. She can't see really. She's bleeding and she's just like saturated with pain. Um, But even in this state, when Bakura comes up to her, she kind of pulls herself together and she's able to needle Bakura about failing out of school, even though she can barely speak. This just makes Bakura angry and she puts a spatial distortion bomb up Gru's nose because she has him trapped somehow. We didn't see that happen, but it'll be explained later. 
And then while Bacara's gloating, Taylor somehow manages to pull out her knife and stab it through Bacara's foot when she steps too close, cutting off a couple of toes. And before Taylor passes out, she manages to uh, throw the knife to Gru so that he can use it to escape. So again, it's it's like a not a lot happens other than this very tense and dramatic kind of internal action as she's she's struggling to do anything. So every little accomplishment that she makes, we're really rooting for her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- this is you're right. It's another action chapter, but a lot of important stuff happens here. Like I think again, we we touched on this before, but we've spent three arcs like being shown demonstrations of just how powerful Taylor can be um, when she's got her bugs in full form. She's taken down uh, ward members. She took down Lung, quote unquote. Um, but her powers in this fight just did nothing. Um, mm-hmm. She was basically useless power wise. Um, she she's not completely useless. In the end, she saves the day. She's the one that chops off the the, the toes. That that saves everyone. But that was totally reliant on Tattletale, right? And I think mm-hmm. that's the most important thing here is that over these past few arcs, we've seen the Undersiders get themselves in terrible situation after terrible situation. And while everyone is like a a part of getting them out of these situations, um, those opportunities only exist because Tattletale was there, right? So like mm-hmm. if they didn't know about the toe rings, um, they probably would have all died. Um, if they didn't have the information on on clock blocker <laughs> and then I guess uh, switching costumes, they probably would have been caught there. Um, if they didn't have information on uh, what's going on in, in Panacea's mind, they probably would have been captured there too. Um, and, and like everyone in this group is important. Like everyone, especially in this section, we saw like Regent like be step up and do a lot of stuff. Like he was instrumental to them getting out of here. But you take away one of those people, and I think the team can operate. Um, like, for example, Rachel wasn't there today, so um, they were down a member, but they still did stuff. But, but like, they're like spokes of the wheel, and if you remove one spoke, the wheel might still be able to operate. But, like, Tattletail's, like, the axle of the wheel. Like, if you take her out, I just think the whole thing falls apart. And that's, that's what this demonstrated to me, is again and again we're seeing how powerful she is. Yeah. And and it's interesting to me that it probably requires, you know, it would require a lot of bravery to continually put yourself in these combat situations if you had Tattletail's power. Because, I mean, Taylor has the physical body of a normal teenage girl, but she can psychically control massive swarms of bugs if she needs to. So so she can kind of throw herself into situations and know that she can hold her own because she's got this extra power but tattletale is just a teenage girl who maybe has like a gun or something sometimes i I don't even know she has a gun in the scene i don't think she does um and she has no physical defense so she's entirely relying on the other undersiders for physical defense but like you just said they're entirely relying on her for the edge that Mm -hmm. that like you said they, they they win by the skin of their teeth over and over again, and it's always because of the informational edge. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm so glad you described the fights in this thing to me as a chess match, um, mm-hmm. because it's so true, and it it by itself highlights how powerful she is. Because if you're playing chess with someone and you know what their strategy is, you know what their next move is going to be. 
like holy shit that's huge and that's what we're seeing again and again and again here yeah yeah and it's it's fun it's just fun yeah that's true i mean let's let's yeah let's stop for a second here and and (laughs) talk about that this fight was great this is i mean everything in this was really well done it was well written it was fun um it was good yeah and i guess the, the the last thing we learn about taylor there is she's really got some some heart as they say some some warrior spirit because she's been you know they've basically lost at this point like like this is the lowest point that we've we've been mm-hmm. at in the story up to this point she's all messed up by the bomb she doesn't even know where her other teammates are she knows regent is out of commission she sees Gru tied up um she knows that she's injured and bleeding and can't see and she's still like fights as hard as she can and that kind of makes us like her more and it also just shows us that she has some metal to her absolutely and i don't and that's maybe it's been my fault that because we've kind of been intentionally ragging on her throughout the 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 series so far um taylor is a very strong person and she's she's like uh, to to go through the things that she has gone through and still be able to pull herself out of bed in the morning is remarkable. So yeah, we're seeing this strength here as well. Yeah, um, but of course, strength can serve evil just as well as good. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So Taylor passes out again after after getting Brian the knife, and uh, we begin chapter four eleven with Taylor still very much out of it, waking up in some kind of back alley medical care situation. Uh, we see here, Tattletail is helping the doctor diagnose Taylor's medical status with her power. Um, and we eventually realize that Taylor's been woken up because they need her to stop subconsciously drawing all the bugs in the area to herself. So she... <laughs> So she stops and it's funny. She's, she's kind of loopy and out of it and acting, acting goofy. And that's kind of funny. It's a nice, it's a nice release of tension after the last couple of chapters. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's some, there's some big stuff here, Matt. Mm -hmm. Um, so I thought about this for a while actually, because like we we know now, like uh, Tattletail specifically says, um, in order to deduce correct medical information, she needs correct information to begin with, right? So mm-hmm. the machines have to be reporting correct information for her to take that and then deduce something else from that. So if they're reporting incorrectly, her she can use her power and get false information. And I'm really wondering how that expands out um, to other things as well. And it makes you wonder, like... Is she is she aware when she's getting incorrect information? Is she just assuming that the information she's getting is correct? And like what happens, you know, when uh, enemies start to learn more about this power and maybe find a way to manipulate in that in that matter? And how important will that be for the team when we've just finished talking about how important her power is to their continued success as a team? So this is like it's subtle, but it's it's it raised a lot of questions for me. Yeah, I really like the way you're thinking there about about how the consequences of this fact might fall out. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is definitely a good lens on on the limitations of her power because it's not it's not just that she needs a certain amount of information to figure things out. It's that what she figures out may indeed be erroneous if the inputs aren't adequate. Right. Um, so it, and also, you know, 
from from Taylor's point of view, it's like at this point, prior to us learning this, we actually are pretty pretty suspicious that she knows what's up with Taylor. But now now we know that there's this limitation where if she's getting false information, she has false conclusions. So maybe you could argue that, oh, okay, well, Taylor's been consistently playing this character of the villain. So maybe that's enough to cause Tattletail's power to not ever make that inference. Right, right. Um, yeah. So it, it injects some doubt. And uh, and it's good for powers to have limitations. I mean, oh, absolutely. If if she could if she could just literally figure out anything ever like period by just thinking about it for a while, then she would have already taken over the world basically. So she needs some some realistic limitations, I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, and then in addition to this, in this chapter, we also see that. Taylor can hear music perfectly well through her bugs when she's in a semi-conscious state and on drugs, whereas she described hearing through the bugs as being really disorienting normally. But that was interesting. Um, not, not, I'm not even exactly sure where that particular thread goes, but um, I think it's probably something we should keep track of. Yeah, well, to me, it just kind of hints that she doesn't have a full grasp on the full extent of what her powers are. Because um, she, she talked about, like, when she first heard through her bugs it was so disorienting that she guess kind of turned it off mm-hmm. like so she just found a way to turn that off and she doesn't really ever turn it on so she's not like working on it she's not training it um and and that's really interesting because i think we are going to see you know the places her powers can go um, yeah and, and i think this is kind of a first hint at that that i mean and that's that i mean if, if you can listen through a bug that's pretty powerful so um this I think this is a hint of her growth in power. Yeah, and and we've seen in in some regards she's very clever with her power, like making the spider silk costumes. But in other regards, even I think just kind of a casual reader can think of creative things to do with bugs that Taylor hasn't tried to do yet. Um, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so there's definitely a lot of room for growth for. Taylor and probably all these characters to some degree. I mean, like when you first hear about Brian's power, you're, you're actually like, I I never would have thought of some of the clever things he does with it, where he'll use it for attack. He'll use it for defense. He'll use it for decoys. He'll use it for escape. You know, it's, 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 um, it's deceptively powerful when you're creative with it. So the undersiders carry her, um, from the doctor's office into what she very gradually realizes is her house. So Brian and Lisa put her on the couch and then they have a nice long chat with her dad, her dad, Danny, and they lay out a nice story about Taylor being the innocent victim of one of Bakuda's bombs because it, we realize that Bakuda has actually started this citywide bombing campaign at this point and there's bombs hitting all over the city and it's kind of an emergency situation. <clears throat> Yeah, so this this touches on what we were talking about earlier about consequences, right? We're seeing this like Bakuda is now on a citywide rampage, bombs are blowing up. This story about how Taylor was um blown up is fake, but it's very it's very easy to believe that this happened somewhere else too. Like a bomb went off and innocent people are hurt, people places. Um so we're seeing, you know, this is a consequence. This is what happened when Taylor caused this power vacuum. Now, um, yeah, like you said, if she's conscious of this, we don't really see it yet. Um, but 
but it does feel like this whole like this whole arc um feels kind of like a, a watershed moment in the book right we talked about this earlier that um the time for the kitty playing the cops and robbers superhero play is is over um this mm-hmm. is this is something much more serious now yeah yeah definitely that's this is uh the the escalation theme i think things are getting worse and worse faster and faster yeah yeah um watching them lie so fluidly to danny makes you simultaneously feel good that taylor has such good stand-up friends and also a little bit creeped out at how how convincing they are (laughs) right and uh lisa can't resist using her power to infer that danny is let down that taylor has opened up to them about her problems um and and not opened up to him oh isn't this so sad yeah (laughs) like i know he's not the perfect father right like it, it in in when your relationship with your children is damaged like you as the adult like have to take the majority of the blame because you're the adult like you're responsible for setting the tone of the relationship but right. you still can't help but feel bad for him right like he just he he wants his daughter to open up to him and he wants to be part of her life and he doesn't know how and it's really sad to think that like there's this side of your child that you will never see because they will only ever show you one side of them. And this time it's kind of literal because she has this whole superhero side, but um, that just that idea is kind of sad. Yeah. And he's probably really desperate for this kind of connection because he's still kind of destroyed over his wife's death, yeah, which wasn't yeah. that long ago. Um, so, so he, he, I think misses her for a lot of reasons. So after talking to Danny for a while, the two villains, come over and sit with Taylor on the couch and quietly debrief her on how the battle ended that she didn't see because she was passed out. So apparently Bakuda got away and started detonating bombs all over the city, seemingly targeting other gangs, though. So it wasn't really just random. It was actually kind of warfare. And then also they revealed to her that Lung was broken out of prison by Oni Lee during this. Yeah, exactly. So so I wonder where this is going to go. I mean, I think that's probably the, the the way this is revealed to us at the, at the end of the at the end of the entire arc it's like oh that was that was the point of all of this almost was like the nemesis is now out of prison again yeah yeah and then they tell her that she's going to have to stay home from school for a week recovering which demoralizes her because she as we discussed at the beginning of the chapter she had just given herself a pat on the back for breaking her skipping school streak now she's going to miss another week. So so she's losing more and more of her grip on her normal life. And the chapter ends with this utterly heartwarming moment where she's pretending to be asleep, resting her head on Brian's arm and shares a smile with her dad. Oh, I love this. <laughs> I love mm-hmm. this so much. And uh, this is kind of what I was touching about earlier that, you know, we rag on Taylor a lot. Um and that's just because we're like seeing, we're like having to witness her go down this bad road. But I love this character so much, I really do. Um, and and like, I just, I, I I just want her to be happy, right? Like, I just want like this moment that she's having right now. I want her to have that every day. Um, and and we get a little glimpse of of what that could be in this moment. Like, she has these two worlds that she's been trying so hard to keep apart. 
Um, like we saw it earlier in this chapter, we saw it multiple times every time someone wanted to intervene and her excuse was always, no, I want to keep this world and that world separate. Now they've come crashing together and she's happy about it. Like, like she, she's sitting here with her friends and with her dad and like, there's this, this moment that she has and you know, you know, it's not going to last. Like, you know, things are going to get worse. There's her, her nemesis is out there in the city. Bombs are blowing up everywhere. But in just this moment, you're just like, I just wish you could live in this moment. It's so tragic and sad and wonderful at the same time. Yeah. The, the emotional weight of this scene really, really affects me. And it really reminds me of something I've been wanting to talk about. You know, at this point, we're starting to see the strengths of this serialized medium where you can write these really long stories. Because as we mentioned earlier, we're, we're like, we're over 100,000 words into the story at this point. So it's like, we're, we're, a, we're a book. We're, we're, we're a long book into the story at this point. But it still feels very much like the pieces are being put in place. And we've had a lot of time to get to know Taylor and several other characters and really connect with them. And we've spent so much of this adventure so far just crapping all over Taylor, giving her a really hard time, giving her very few victories, really, here and there. But, but she's, she's had almost no real happiness up to this point. So when, when Wildo finally allows us this moment of vicarious joy through her, this moment of contentment, it pays off so well. It's... It's so it's so earned. Yeah, well, well said. I agree. I just love this. I just love this scene. And I think that's one thing that he does perfectly in general as a writer is is balance that making the character's life really, really hard, but then giving them just enough of a victory every now and then that you don't become demoralized and stop thinking the story is fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the final interlude for this chapter is Brutus. Brutus is Rachel's dog. Brutus is good boy. Brian tells Rachel to be careful. Rachel got hurt by the bad guys. Rachel takes Brutus for walkies. Little human bothers Brutus. Rachel scares little human's mommy to teach her a lesson about dangerous dogs. Rachel takes Brutus to dog fighting ring. Once inside, uses Brutus to destroy fighting pit, maul bad humans. All in good fun. Rachel is sad about hurt and dead dogs. Rachel rescues many dogs. Oh my god, Matt. I loved every moment of this. It's like yeah. Wild Bo just gave himself a writing experiment and just said, okay, now I'm going to write in POV dog. Go. Yeah, I mean, I, I love any time he writes from like weird minds perspectives. He does this a lot in Twig because it's like this biological weird world so there's a lot of different weird kinds of minds in that story but there's definitely weird kinds of minds in, in this story too so um and it's just it's just adorable you just love brutus and and and, and of course this is the first real like we got a hint that maybe there was more to rachel but now we really see that that rachel has this completely soft core when it comes to dogs and she's just completely heartbroken at 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 the fact that these dogs are dead. And uh, I mean, I, I don't, I, I think it's pretty clear from this text that she's not just like raiding this place to get dogs. Like she's raiding this place because she thinks it's 
abhorrent that dogfighting exists and it's it's like mm-hmm. a personal crusade. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's what's really cool about how this is written is he challenged himself to write in perspective of dog still convey important emotional information. And it mm-hmm. works. Um, yeah. And yet you, you absolutely do see more of and and obviously she's not perfect, right? Like she she puts a little girl's hand in the dog's mouth and threatens her mom because the little girl walked up to the dog and started petting it. So, I mean, like she has issues too. I mean, she's not a perfect human being, but she is a human being. She is complicated. She has layers. Um, and she, um, has a heart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what we see here. And I, I love it. I love this. This yeah. is the perfect way to end the arc. I was so happy as I was reading it. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. It's one of my favorite things. So that wraps up the beat by beat uh, summary of arc four shell. So Scott, do you have any, any guesses as to what's going to be going on as we move forward? Oh, do I? Cause we all know how good at this I am. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, once again, um, we know I'm over one. We had two guesses from last week um, that still haven't, uh, been proven true or false yet, but I do. I have some new ones for you here, Matt. Um, so this is one I actually had last week, but I chickened out on it at the last minute. But I'm going to go ahead and do it, do it now just to see okay. if I'm wrong. Um, I'm going to say that Taylor's uh, big breakup with Emma is something cape slash parahuman related. Uh, more specifically, Emma's betrayal of Taylor comes with a, a rational, reasonable explanation that has something to do with superpowers. Um, either Taylor's or her own. Um, <laughs> so that's number one. Um, number two is uh, that while the rest of the undersiders will listen to Taylor's requests not to intervene at school, I have a feeling that Rachel uh, will not. Um, that's just my guess there. So Rachel is going to do something at Taylor school. Um and then my final one, which is really just something I threw out of left field, but you made me put it in here anyway, <laughs> um, is that uh, I'm predicting that the quote-unquote boss of the Undersiders is actually Lisa, who is just uh, pretending to work for someone else to deflect attention off of her. And as we talked about, this would make sense because Lisa is very aware that her power requires uh, muscle, quote-unquote, to actually get stuff done. She cannot exist on her own um, because her power while uh, very useful, needs uh, people to actually pull the trigger or do the work or etc. So um, that's that's my last one. We will see on these three. Yeah, I, I like this segment a lot because, like, when when you're right, it everyone who's listening gets to be like, oh yeah, you know, good job. And then when you're not right, it's still it's still a window into the headspace of someone who's reading the story for the first time, which is very easy to. Um, like it's almost impossible for me to mentally put myself into a position of not knowing things that I know. So like (laughs) when I'm, when I'm reading through, I, I literally can't come up with these things that you're coming up with because I'm like, well, I, I already know, I already know. So I, I, like, I I can't, I can't like, uh, I can't be creative in that particular way. So it's fun because it reminds me what it was like to be in that state of uncertainty. Um, so I think it serves a, serves a great function even when you're even when you're not right so that's, Which is that's probably like gonna be this. most of the time well like but i say okay. just just make a ton of predictions 
and make them really weird and specific. And then if any of those is right, then you look like a genius. <laughs> there we go. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm taking those notes and I'm going to come back to you with some great ones next week. All right. Well, uh, that wraps up arc four shell. I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion and hearing Scott's reactions and, and predictions. As always, we appreciate your feedback and uh, we're always trying to improve. So let us know if you have any advice on Twitter, Reddit, as a comment on our dailyplanetfilms.com page uh, via email or in our Facebook group or any other way you can figure out how to get information to us. Yeah, I will say that our uh, our page is in the middle of a transition right now. Um, mm -hmm. Hopefully it will be fixed, but uh, depending on when you're listening to this, you could go to our page and see it's kind of a mess. Um, we're working on it. <laughs> we just transitioned to a new hosting provider because we were getting some massive slowdowns in the middle of the day, as you people who clicked on it probably noticed. Um, but this should alleviate that problem, so we've got some growing pains as we get all of our data and stuff over in a, in a way we want it. So please excuse our, our mess as we deal with this. But Yeah, the, the page should, uh, should still work, and none of this should actually affect the face uh, the uh the podcast feed or oh, the, yeah 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 or the youtube feed or really any of the ways that you're getting uh getting this podcast it's really just the page that's messed up um so we also have a patreon page patreon.com slash daily planet films which we've actually updated recently to provide some more clarity on what we're going to be doing with your donations um in particular we have a few milestones, but in particular, one of them is that we would like to host some kind of fan art contest with uh, with cash prizes um, if we hit a certain a certain milestone. So um, just go go check out our our milestones, see if you're interested. Uh, everything you give us just goes into making the show better, and we can do more things and then be more more interactive and make a make make a better experience for everyone. And while you're on Patreon, don't forget to donate to Wild Bo because he does this for a living and, and he needs it. And uh, we need more worm. Yeah, we're going to run out of stuff to talk about eventually if we don't get yeah, more. I know. So, Scott, where can you be found on the Internet? I am on Twitter uh, at ScottDaily85. That's D-A-L-Y. Um, so you can follow me there, or you can see all my writing at, at dailyplanetfilms.com, like we said. Uh, I'm also writing for another website, uh, kind of guest writing for a website called goodenoughgeek.com. Um, I just submitted an Iron Fist review for that. Um, I don't know if it's up yet, but it might be by the time you're listening to this. Um, and then I'm also like reviewing games and stuff for them as, as we get new codes in. So if you want to see more of my excellent insights on things, you can check me out there. Cool. Yeah, I, I haven't had a chance to check that out, but I'm looking forward to reading those articles. I can be found on Twitter at my Wheel of Time inspired handle, more than a mail. And, uh, and I write articles for dailyplanetfilms.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to listen to some of our other episodes, um, I'm going to again recommend our Kryptonian collection series if you haven't had a chance to check that out yet. It's a contest contest format debate show where contestants argue in favor of their favorite movie and the rotating council of L votes on whether the proposed film will be entered into the vaunted collection. So check that out. Yeah. Listen to the speed racer episode. Cause that's yeah. my movie and it, it's really good. Yes. I haven't done one yet. Is it my turn next? Uh, it's getting there. I think. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, 
that's all for today. And we will see you all next week. Matt, we did it. We're two hours. We finally gave the people what they wanted. We did. One hour and 59 minutes and X seconds. We, we did it. We just have to the symbol for a minute. <laughs> all right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.